It is among the planet's premier surfing hotspots. Strong winter swells launch Pacific Ocean waves as high as 30 feet along the north shore of Oahu, one of the longest stretches of rideable surf on Earth. Yet the same forces that attract some of the world's biggest surfing competitions are also battering the Hawaiian Islands beaches. While these gigantic winter waves have long pounded Oahu's north shore, more recent stressors like climate change, rising sea levels, and increased development have exacerbated the rate of coastal erosion. The shoreline is rapidly shrinking, threatening homes, infrastructure, beach access, and cultural resources. In February 2022, a house collapsed into the ocean near Oahu's Sunset Beach, and many more properties are at risk. Nearly 75% of beaches along the island's northern shore are undergoing chronic erosion, according to a 2022 report from the Surf Rider Foundation. Nearly 30% of the North Shore's residential properties now have a home that is within 20 feet of the shoreline. Trying to better understand the forces that are accelerating this coastal erosion, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Honolulu District turned to CoreCam, an Arctic research effort that analyzes camera images to better measure dynamic coastal conditions. In December 2019, two scientific-grade camera systems were installed at Sunset Beach to autonomously capture images and provide hourly data on beach state, erosion rates, bathymetry, wave parameters, and more. The cameras were also able to observe a large beach collapse that happened that spring, providing critical information to scientists and beach managers. Making this capture even more significant is that the event happened during an unexpected time when wave conditions were low. Thanks to CoreCam, scientists were able to pinpoint where and when the collapse took place and determine the water levels and wave conditions in which it occurred. This valuable data is giving coastal managers a more holistic understanding of the unique nearshore dynamics along Oahu's northern coast and allowing them to make better informed decisions about how to preserve this special place. Monitoring large and constantly changing coastlines can be expensive, time-consuming, and dangerous. Traditional surveying methods are also limited because they only provide a single snapshot in time and don't capture the full picture. As a result, coastal managers don't always have the information they need to understand dynamic coastal conditions and plan projects that preserve our nation's coasts, protect the environment, and support the economy. To overcome this knowledge gap, Burdick launched CoreCam, which uses automated remote video technology to better monitor federal beach and other coastal projects. CoreCam works with a variety of images from cell phone pictures uploaded by citizen scientists to scientific grade video captured by high-end cameras, giving coastal managers a robust, holistic, and real-time understanding of rapidly changing conditions. Building on decades of research conducted at Erdick's field research facility in Duck, North Carolina, this effort will enable better project designs and more proactive management of our nation's coasts. I'm Megan Saxton, and with Chris Kiefer, this is The Power of Arctic. Our guests today are Dr. Brittany Bruder, Dr. Ian Connery, and Sean McGill from Arctic's Coastal and Hydraulics Laboratory. Brittany is a research coastal engineer based at CHL's Field Research Facility, or FRF, and Ian is a research oceanographer based at the FRF. Sean is a research physical scientist at CHL's Vicksburg location. We will talk with Brittany, Ian, and Sean about how CoreCam will lead to increased understanding, improved predictions, and better solutions for our nation's coasts.
Brittany, Ian, Sean, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Brittany, I want to start with you and just kind of a general explainer. Can you tell us what CoreCam is and why it matters? Sure. So CoreCam is a video monitoring system for federal beach projects. It's more than your average surf cam or webcam. Um, We have specially calibrated cameras that can give quantitative measurements. So instead of saying your beach is 10 pixels wide, we can say it's 100 meters wide. Or we can say after a storm hit, instead of saying we lost 10 pixels, we could say we lost 100 meters. And so the idea is not only do we have these cameras capturing this imagery, but we're making the data available in near real time so that districts and the public can see uh, the state of their beach as it is evolving. So why is this actually helpful to coastal communities as well as our Army Corps districts? Is that a lot of our federal beach projects are actually data starved, meaning that when we go in to plan to do a project, sometimes the last data point that we have to base our designs off are years old. And as people know that the beach can change day by day, month by month, even tide by tide. And so when we plan our operations and maintenance and do our numerical models to find the best design, we may be basing this off of limited data. And as a result, our management practices can be reactive versus proactive. And this is not the most efficient way to do business. So one solution to that is just to monitor our breaches more, do more measurements, be on the ground more. However, for some districts with many, many projects, this isn't feasible to do. Um, A lot of times field measurements are dangerous. Um, They're very labor and personnel intensive and time intensive. That's where CoreCam hopefully can come in and help, is that we can place a camera, calibrate it, and then you can get hourly measurements without ever setting foot on the ground. And this can help us predict when projects need attention, when they need maintenance. Um, We can better understand the effects of storms because we can be there right before the storm, even when everyone has to evacuate, and right afterwards because our cameras are still there. Um, and we can have more efficient management of our beaches and understanding on how our projects will perform to better protect our coastlines. Sean, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the different levels of core cam and the benefits of each? Yeah, so we have three tiers to the core cam system. So starting up from the top, we have the Argus system. For example, this is uh, what we have currently at the field research facility in Duck. This has been ongoing since the 1970s is scientific grade, very expensive cameras. We're looking out, but we've converted it to a bird's eye view and it gives the layout of the field research facility. It's very high resolution, so we're able to get wave characteristics from it, extract the shoreline, beach width, and we've developed this large data set. Because of the cost involved with that, and the infrastructure that's needed, we have the next tier, which is our our trail cams. So these are about $1,000 per system. It comes with a commercial off-the-shelf camera system and a solar panel that powers it. And these can give a little bit coarser resolution data products. So you're able to get your shoreline, you're able to get the beach width. You might not be able to get some of those wave characteristics, but this is very good for some of the districts who might not be able to purchase a full Argus system. Um, And Ian, I understand that you are also in charge of a piece of this. Can you elaborate a little bit about what you do? Yeah, of course. So our third sort of tier in CoreCam is uh, the citizen science effort called CoSnap. And this was started in Australia in 
2018 at the University of New South Wales. Um, so we've adapted their uh, technology and approach to really utilize the power of a, a cell phone. So basically everyone nowadays carries a cell phone in their pocket. Cameras have improved so much in terms of resolution that we can actually use a cell phone image to map shorelines as well. It's a pretty simple uh, principle. We have install some signage at a site, oftentimes on a pier or an elevated area. And then you put your phone on our little metal mount that's in a fixed position. So everyone's photo is roughly the same orientation. Passerbys or, or, or beachgoers, whoever can go up to the sign, scan this QR code that takes them to our landing page. And from there, they can select, take a photo and submit. And easy as that, we have a uh, image with an associated um, shoreline and time. We have these stations uh, scattered throughout the, the southeast now. And our first pilot was on our pier at the, the field research facility. Can people upload a coast map from anywhere? Or, or are there certain locations that you've kind of got set aside where, where you're accepting coast maps from? Or how, how does that work? Yeah, so the, the creators of CoastSnap, they did recently add a, a DIY CoastSnap function where if you have a sort of stable platform, you can pick a CoastSnap from anywhere. We do know that the, the data is a bit more accurate if you are taking from one of our installed stations. Um, and we, we can repeat sort of those exact photos through time a little bit better. And those areas, again, are focused on specific sites where we might have a federal beach project or um, or nourishment or just somewhere where we're interested in in monitoring. So yes, you, you can indeed take one anywhere, but we, we lean toward um, using our official stations. So we talked three levels going from, you know, the, again, co-snap kind of citizen scientists taking a picture on your phone, uploading it, the trail cameras, and, and then the professional grade scientific cameras. You all talk the pros and the cons of each when you choose which one you want to use in a different location and which ones work better, where. So we have our three tiers. You know, at first, when we did this project, as Sean alluded to, we started with the high-end professional series camera. These cameras are really precise, and as a result, they're very expensive. But because of their precision, they can get more advanced data products. So. Uh, they can get longer videos. We can actually get high enough resolved data to do bathymetry estimates, meaning um, we can take movies and actually estimate the depth of the water by tracking waves. Wow. And we can do current estimates as well. And so this higher end system is also a greater risk. Putting it on a roof for a storm, it's a bigger investment. As we started to install these more and more, we identified that Pretty much these were ideal for long-term type of site. They do the best on high vantage points. So on top of rooftops, on top of a tower like we have at the field research facility. As we were saying that districts had trouble purchasing these and you know, didn't feel comfortable with the amount of risk involved, we went back to the drawing board and said, okay, maybe we don't need the top of the line, all the bells and whistles. Um, what is the data product we can get more most bang for our buck? And that was definitely shoreline or beach width. And so that's when we went to the trail cameras. And as Sean said, those with everything you can get top of the line are about $1,000. We can usually install a few on a station. And so those are the best. They can't do things like the symmetry or currents, but you can get a really robust and standard measurement of your shoreline or beach width or even just quality of your beach. 
for those who don't have, you know, more the, the data infrastructure or even the cost to install a trail camera, we also have CoSnap, um, as Ian stated, which is the cheapest level, which requires mostly just a sign and like a little metal stand. And so those can actually provide us uh, shoreline as well. But as you can imagine, it's dependent on the people taking it. So the estimates are less consistent um, and the data is just a little bit noisier. However, you have to balance that with the benefits of having interaction with the public and just that outreach component. So even where areas where we have trail cams, we, we still would like to try to put out a co-snap just to get community involvement. Sure. What locations are you targeting with this effort? I mean, obviously the coastline, but are you looking at specific regions, specific projects? How do you determine where and which cameras to use in different places? For just in terms of like, Four wide type of applications. You know, a lot of times we've started with beach nourishment projects because they're the most visually apparent and so easy to interpret. As we grow the program, we hope to get different types of projects or uses, particularly in navigation or to count boats or to count use and things like that as well. Ian has a good idea of, he can elaborate on, you know, what makes a good CoSnap station and location. Sure. For CoSnap, we're primarily looking for a location that has a good vantage point, and that generally is coming from somewhere that has some elevation. And so on the East Coast, we don't have the, the luxury of we're installing CoSnaps on piers or even beach walkovers, but the higher we can be, the, the farther along the coastline we can see to collect more information. And you might be surprised even collect shoreline information um, as far away as almost a half a mile. Um, so it's pretty powerful, even though it's you know just coming from a citizen's cell phone image. And, you know, for Coastal, we try to find places that are highly visible. So we do get a lot of community participation. Ian's done a lot of educational research outreach with some of our groups, as well as, you know, he's actually familiar with, you have locations that are, you know, highly trafficked, but it may be, you know, one person submits one coast map for their whole life because they just visited that location once. But then you have regulars, fishermen, people on their daily walks um, who are really actually consistent. And so, Ian, can you elaborate on some of the educational efforts? We've partnered with Various uh, organizations and facilities, for example, Jeanette's Pier in, in Nags Head is a part of the state aquariums. And this has uh, presented some phenomenal opportunities for outreach and education. We've done some shorter courses or just presentations on different types of coastal mapping and how it relates to protecting our coastlines. Um, these have been for K through 12 camps. We've spoken with some high school teachers as well, but we've sort of talked through the different ways we can measure a shoreline or measure changes in our coastline, whether it's a more elaborate process like our Argus Towers, um, but we've also emphasized how we can use a simple technology like CoSnap and we, we take the kids out there um, and have them sort of walk through the process um, and then show them actually how, how we can 
do the, the processing on the back end and where the sort of the fancier programming comes in to actually collect useful scientific information. We try to share the data and different information as much as we can. This is something that we've taken a little bit of a step back from recently, but we're hoping to ramp that back up in terms of just releasing interesting findings or movies or images from storms or beach projects just to help the, the community get a better understanding of what might be um, happening in their area along their coastline. Yeah, we've been thrilled so far, at least in, in our local community area at the um, sort of involvement and the number of submissions. In the summer, sometimes we have as, as many as 15 per day. So it's wow. just this immense amount of data that's collected by citizens and it's free, but very powerful. How many locations roughly are you all set up to take Coast Naps right now? We're managing or we've partnered with folks for a total of, I think it's six stations now in sort of the Southeast region. We have a growing list of uh, future stations as well. And I should mention that the CoSnap program, is, it's international now. So it's been really um, amazing to see how, how it's grown across the world. I, I think it's uh, there are CoSnap stations in over 20 countries now. I think they're up to around a few hundred stations, but everywhere from Africa to Europe, South America, and all sorts of areas, different types of coastlines, rocky coastlines, black sand beaches. So it's really sort of fascinating to see how your shoreline and your little uh, neck of the woods might relate to someone else's across the world. Yeah, that, that's cool. Sean, we've talked about the scientific grade cameras and some of the locations for that. We've talked about Coast Nap. Can you kind of talk about the trail cameras and what kind of locations you all are looking at to put those in? We currently have four stations that are out there right now. One of them is at the field research facility. That's kind of our testing one. So That's in Duck, North Carolina. Correct, yes, in Duck. So we have that on the property looking north. It captured one of the nourishments that was occurring this past year. Um, and that was kind of our first test one, our Actual first real deployment was at Lynnhaven Inlet, which is in Virginia Beach, Virginia. We did that last August, and we went on top of about 15-story building, put four of these cameras up there, so that way you had about 180-degree view of the beach. And we were able to monitor, again, a beach nourishment on the west side of the inlet, and then in the past few months, they've started nourishing the east side of the inlet. So we're monitoring that, so that way we can go in and do some of this shoreline extraction. And then just last week, we put in two more stations. So the first one was at Cranny Island, which is a dredge disposal site in Norfolk, Virginia. The Norfolk district is concerned about the levees breaching, as well as making sure that they have enough water outflow in those areas. So we did the deployment there, so that way they can, instead of having to drive to this area, fly a drone, they can just pull it up, and every 15 minutes they can see an image of what their site looks like. And then we also did a deployment at the Norfolk district, and that one is more focused on some uh, basic research for trying to extract water level automatically from some of these images. How did the effort get started? The idea of this kind of quantitative coastal imaging actually started um, around uh, 1986 at the field research facility, but it was started with the field research facility in partnership with Oregon State University. Rob Holman and John Stanley are kind of the architects of it. And so, you know, the idea was that you could take images, calibrate them, and get real-world measurements out of them. Sean and Ian have heard me tell this joke like a thousand times, so cue the eye roll. We had these cameras up in a 40-meter tower, just about 10 to 12 stories, 
And, you know, for years, that technology stayed there. It literally stayed in academia. It was more of a research tool. So it was stayed in an ivory tower. And it wasn't until we had a nourishment at Duck a few years ago that we were able to capture and really study closely that we saw the value of this tool for our districts. And we thought, how can we take this niche technology that requires years of study and um, expertise and make it a, a streamlined tool for our district engineers? Um, and that's when we started to develop some of our own deployable systems, such as the scientific grade. And then we moved and evolved into using commercial systems like the trail cameras and things like that. As we were doing that, we were learning about the hardware. And we were still kind of in that, that academic research mindset where we'd go, we'd put out a camera, it would collect, and then you know we could sit down and analyze it and give the districts their answer or how it performed. And as we worked with the districts more, we realized, you know, that it was extremely helpful to have those reports, but it was late in the process. Like, we don't want to know what's happening on our beach a year from now. We want to know what's happening right now. So we took a step back from all of our deployments um, and the hardware focus and really focused on the data side of it and the data ingestion so that we had this automatic pipeline so that someone could just take a camera, plug it into our system, and then with, within an hour, they can get their measurements on a public data portal or a public website. And so that's what our focus has been on for the past couple years is getting that quick data dissemination. And I would say we're, we're pretty close. We're kind of, we have a beta version of our website out, but with all the images, all the camera systems that we've been talking about, CoSnap, Argus, the trail cameras, we have the ones that we have deployed right now. As soon as there is a picture taken, we have a data product on our website within one hour. And so we're really proud of that right now. And we hope to build on that even further. You know, as Sean mentioned, he has his water level study. So what he's trying to do is how can we get accurate estimates of water level from these cameras? After his basic research, we hope to take his algorithms um, and employ them in our system. So not only will someone log into our core cam page and see an image of a beach, but they'll also know the water level, whether the water level is rising, whether it's declining, you know, is there in danger of flooding? And that's down the line. But again, like we're hoping to set up this framework so researchers like Ian and, and Sean can answer these questions and then make our whole network better. And Brittany, you mentioned the core cam website. Our listeners can find a link for that website in our show notes. This is the first episode we've had to feature Erdic's field research facility. Can you talk a little bit more about the FRF and its capabilities? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. So the field research facility, part of Erdic's Coastal and Hydraulics Laboratory, it's a premier coastal research facility, and we have been observing coastal processes and responses for over 40 years. It's considered one of the most comprehensive coastal data records, and you know it literally is the world's most studied beach. And so, you know, we conduct all these field observations to support different data analysis, to improve numerical models, as well as I said earlier, measurement technology development. And so, it actually was started in around the 1960s, and it was a location to better understand waves due to our uh, frequent exposure to tropical and extratropical storms. We are known for our large pier. I believe it's one of the longest piers on the East Coast. 
Ian, do you know happen to know that by any chance? It is the, I believe, the longest on the East okay. Coast. It's the longest here on the East Coast. That is kind of one of our defining features. It was a site for academic collaboration and, and government collaboration. Um, and for you know a very long time, the focus of the facility was to keep the measurements going. Again, we have this wonderful long record of symmetry or, or depth measurements, shoreline measurements, currents, waves. And, you know, because we have such a long data set, it's really useful for identifying and understanding beach responses to storms, you know, long-term water level change, effects to larger processes such as the climate. You know, and I would say now in the past 10 years or so, um, we've started to develop our own scientific research team that is permanently stationed here. And so, you know, support the USACE uh, civil and, and military missions. Again, we mentioned the pier. We also have some unique technologies as well. We have our Argus Tower, which I mentioned earlier, which is about 10, 12 stories high. That has our scientific grade core cam camera on top. We have a Lark, which is a Korean War type vessel. It's kind of like a duck boat. And that's kind of one of our workhorses that we do a lot of our depth measurements. We do a lot of our instrument deployments. And so it's a very efficient and safe way to access the surf zone. We also have our coastal research amphibious buggy, otherwise known as the crab. I'm not really not really sure how to describe it. I would say it's probably about three stories tall, looks like a three-legged spider, and it goes out into the ocean and it can withstand some pretty large wave conditions and we use that as well for our installations and uh, measurements. It's one of the three crabs in the world. We also are developing new technology. We have a continuously operating LIDAR that measures the beach every hour um, using lasers. And then we also are famous for our wave gauge, our wave array. It's a directional wave gauge. Um, it's the highest resolution in the world. And we've been continuing these wave measurements for over 40 years. The surf zone is not notoriously a very difficult place to collect any data or information in general. And so uh, because of breaking waves and currents and the, sh the shape of the seafloor, this is somewhere where we're often missing information. And this applies to across the globe. And so at the FRF, we have these unique technologies and a, a very unique skill set and very capable employees that are able to collect um, and deploy instrumentation in the, the surf zone, which is, uh, is often dangerous or, or hazardous. So that, that's really what helps um, set us apart at the FRF is we have this continuous record of data within, within the, the surf zone itself. You're located, of course, on North Carolina's Outer Banks in Duck. And we've talked a lot this episode. I mean, obviously, I think it's obvious the civil works capabilities that are taking place at the field research facility. But there's also a lot of military work as well. And it seems like that's kind of been a growing area for you guys. Yes, we have an active presence in a lot of DOD type of research, whether it's basic research or more applied. We just recently have a brand new building to help support these efforts. We are supporting research into underwater autonomous systems. We are supporting research for UAS, uh, which is unmanned aerial system. All of this effort is to better help the assess the surf zone and conditions for the warfire war or littoral entry operations. And so with a lot of this imaging 
technology, you know, we can leverage it for a bunch of different uses. So, you know, we've been talking about stationary cameras. However, you know, a lot of this can be applied to unmanned aerial systems or aerial imagery. So a lot of the same algorithms that can be used for situational awareness for the warfighter, keeping our soldiers safe on the beach, knowing which area of the beach is safest to transit. And again, we're also developing new autonomous water systems, such as the bottom crawler, as well as also surface piercing robots. And so a lot of this to help have our soldiers have an advantage in the littoral, or that's the, that's the military speak for the beach, yeah. the beach zone. Tell us about some of your pilot projects and what you learned from them. I would say one of our uh, first pilot projects that was away from home, uh, away from the FRF or Field Research Facility, was in New Smyrna Beach. We worked with Jacksonville District. They did the nearshore berm placement. And, you know, I think that's really where we identified the power of the tool. Because, you know, a nearshore berm placement, they take the sand and they put it offshore. They actually don't put it above the water where you can see it in this type of nourishment. And the idea is that it can either dissipate wave energy and allow the beach to grow, or actually the sand that they place moves this way on the beach. It's difficult to really identify what happens after you place the sand. And so with the core camp cameras that we installed, we were able to track where the sand was placed, where it increased wave action, um, and where it sheltered wave action. And actually, we were able to monitor how the beach grew and responded. And, you know, a lot of times, a lot of people, they don't see the sand. How do we know that it's actually growing the beach? And so with this data, we were actually able to show that the beach did grow with this type of nourishment, and it can be an effective tool. Another fun pilot project that was alluded to in the introduction was, you know, our deployment at Sunset Beach. And this is more of an anecdotal lesson learned, but we flew all the way to Hawaii from Duck, which was a long flight. We installed the camera. It worked while we were there for a week, and we came back and stopped working. You know, at the field research facility, as we're testing all this technology, you know, we learn things on on the way through mistakes. We've learned to protect from salt, uh, water intrusion, rusting, basically everything that we could be hit with. But we did not anticipate the tenacity of Hawaiian ants. Hmm. So we actually had our district folks come and check on the cameras for us and see why why they weren't working because we had so many fail-safes for power, communications, but we did not uh, have a fail-safe for an ant intrusion. So hmm. they, they opened up camera system and apparently the ants were attracted to the electric signals and they kind of short-circuited wow. the system. So now we deploy some bug spray with our systems. Talking about the project at Sunset Beach, and like you said, we, we mentioned it in the intro, and, and obviously once you got it back up and running again, can you kind of talk about the impact that it had having CoreCam monitoring the beach there? Um, we were able to get a really great record during the pandemic where people weren't allowed on the beach. Doing that, we, we actually captured a beach collapse that was unanticipated. So, you know, the district asked us to help monitor the beach, particularly during their big wave season, because that's when they had thought and rightfully so that that would be the most vulnerable 
time. And so, you know, we went before the season started, we deployed our cameras, then the pandemic hit, everything changed. And the big wave season ended with not as much change. Um, However, during typically the low wave season, there was a very short tiny wave event or waves came from a different direction and that precipitated a collapse, which we were able to capture on the camera and we can try to get measurements from that imagery. And so that's what was really helpful in illuminating from that site is that we were to use traditional monitoring methods where you pick a date where you think you're going to observe something and you plan around that date and you go, you measure and you leave. That wouldn't have been able to capture that event because it was so short and unexpected. Whereas having these cameras out are able to capture it when it is uh, least expected. Jumping on that unexpected train of thought, you know, Sean has done a lot of work trying to gain imagery, information about tsunamis from available imagery. And while he hasn't used 4CAM cameras, he's used widely available webcams. And so Sean, can you go over that effort? Yeah, Brittany, that was a pretty exciting event. So if you guys remember back in January of 2022, we had that volcanic eruption in the South Pacific and created a tsunami that ended up impacting the West Coast. Ended up being the largest tsunami since the 2011 uh, Japanese earthquake that produced that tsunami. So if you think, you know, how much technology has changed since then, think just even our iPhones, camera qualities are better. So I kind of explored some of the available surf cams in the areas, and we were able to see impacts of the tsunami, being able to see those waves come in and save those images, started working on trying to extract that water level and make comparisons between in-situ instruments that NOAA has there, as well as just seeing if we can measure and monitor the tsunami in a couple areas without these instruments. Um, And that's kind of been the basis for some of these ongoing water level extraction from the imagery work we have going on, like I said, at the the Norfolk District earlier in the conversation. You all talk about why this data is important. And, you, you know, we've talked about the different kinds of data you can get, bathymetry, water level, wave conditions, so forth. How does having this data enable better decisions? One way that it can help with decisions is it's better input into our models. So if we see that a storm is coming and we want to identify what area is the most vulnerable, the morphology or the, the shape of the beach is the huge driving factor on how projects and beaches respond to increasing water level and wage. And so the more accurate we can get that to input into our models, the more accurate our models are going to be. And so using a shoreline estimate from an hour ago versus one from five years ago is probably going to give us a better picture of how to decide where should we allocate resources, where do we think damage is going to be worse, where is the most vulnerable area. So that's kind of one side on like kind of the emergency aspect of it. You know, the other side is that, again, it's this idea of proactive versus reactive management. So let's say we have in Lynn Haven Inlet, there could be some shoaling that occurs or some patches of sand that that obstruct the inlet or passages of boats. Without any eyes on the inlet, we really have no idea And until someone calls and says, hey, I'm stuck. Can you get me out yesterday? If we have imagery and we have a way to, to monitor it, um, we can actually see, hey, we see that the waves are behaving differently here. That probably means that the depths are changing or a lot of times we can literally just see Hey, we, we see the sand rising up. Um, we probably should 
schedule some sort of dredging activity or something in the future. Another way is uh, of better understanding projects is just having these long-term records will have us better understand how the beach naturally changes, and that can help us better understand how projects will affect how the beach behaves. So that is increasing the positive aspects while minimizing the negative aspects of any type of project. Yeah. So today we've really emphasized a lot of our quantitative data products, you know, whether it's the a shoreline or a water level or uh, the shape of the seafloor. I, I just want to highlight also from these images, whether it's Coast Snap or Trail Cams or Argus, there's other very important qualitative information we can gather from the images as well. Um, we've been able to capture the timing of when a beach scarp forms, which is important for beach safety and traffic ability. From the images, we can look at differences in the types of sand, maybe the differences um, or similarities in vegetation. Um, we might even identify a sea turtle nest or uh, be able to count the number of people on the beach that day. So there's all these other pieces of information from the images themselves that might be useful to different users. Ian, Ian, that was great. You know, just to kind of add real quick on what Ian said about the extra information, not just quantitative, but, you know, one um, advantage of the imagery over traditional methods is that, you know, we collect over so much area. Um, you know, a lot of times you deploy an instrument out and it's at one little point. You know, it would be if you took one measurement the size of a football to represent the whole football field, you know, whereas an image you get the entire area. And so, you know, we, we're getting so much information at the same time and coverage. Can each of you tell us about your backgrounds and how you became involved in this project? I've been working with Erdic for about six years, I believe. I have my PhD and master's in coastal um, engineering, as well as a bachelor's degree in civil engineering. I loved problem solving and engineering, and I love the ocean. And so that's kind of where these interests have led. And I started with CoreCam. It just kind of was, was happenstance that I fell into this project. I love telling stories with images and showing data in creative ways. And I think the imaging really allows us to do that. Sean? Yeah, so for my master's thesis, I was using surf cams to automatically detect rip currents. Um, so this was something I was super passionate about and wanted to keep getting involved with image processing and the coastal environment. So I started here about three years ago, and I actually met Brittany during DuneX, and she presented this opportunity that was getting ready to start up, and I was able to join the team, and I've been enjoying it since. Cool. Dunex, of course, was a big uh, field research experiment that happened out at the field research facility in Duck. Uh, maybe 2021? That sounded about right? Yeah, fall of 2021. Ian, tell us about your background and how you came to be involved with this. I have a background in geology and coastal resources management. been working uh, with Erdic full-time for about four years now. I focused on a lot of uh, beach and dune research and to sort of measure how those systems are changing. We typically use a lot of different remote sensing methods that we've talked about some today, whether it's a laser scanner or image from a tower. And I just got involved um, with CoSnap by hearing about it and um, realizing it was a very fascinating yet useful uh, piece of technology. And I also was, I think, seeking something a little less traditional than we're used to in terms of work. I wanted to do something more community uh, related. And yeah, one, one thing uh, sort of led to another. That's cool. So what do you all see 
for the future for CoreCam? What, what kind of lies ahead? We are basically right now building the framework of our data infrastructure. And I, I would say we're probably a year away from finishing it out. And then after that, we hope to install more cameras, more capabilities. So like Sean was talking about his research into the water level detection, you know, add that capability. Also integrate into other ERDIC products, such as other numerical models and things like that. And I think another big focus that we'll reach on to that Sean's already touched is kind of these cameras of opportunity. Like there are thousands of cameras all over the country, you know, and if we can get access to that data and apply our same algorithms, that's even more and more data points where we don't even have to put a camera out. So, you know, reaching out to local communities for their own webcams and seeing if they'd be interested in how we can get their data so we can give them engineering data back. Is part of this too, I mean, you all have worked with a lot of districts across the Corps of Engineers on various projects, but are there opportunities to work with others outside the Corps of Engineers to collaborate with them on CoreCam? Ian has, has reached out for some university partners to help get their own CoSNAP station up and running. We're also part of the Coastal Imaging Research Network, um, which is a collaborative group of academics and government research organization that has free courses and code bases online for people to get their own stations up and running. Um, and so we try to be a resource uh, in that as well for local communities. Are you all trying to develop some of these cameras that other organizations can use? Yes, we have this data framework, and the idea is that certain cameras can be ingested into it, and it would provide this data. And so we're trying to develop best practices on how other districts and partners can purchase these cameras, get them installed, operate them, maintain them, and have them securely run into our system. Um, so we're kind of developing this technology transfer transition plan to try to figure out how does this best work in a city planner or a district engineer's workflow? How do they budget for this? How is this considering monitoring? You know, which has been new and a kind of enjoyable challenge, um, you know, because this is brand new technology. It's not in a lot of standards, monitoring standards or, or things like that. And so how do we promote this technology as a viable monitoring tool so it can be more widely adapted in standard engineering practice? Guys, thanks for being with us today and for sharing a little bit about what you do. Thank you. Uh, it was really exciting to talk about CoreCam, and I'm happy to have further discussions or collaborations um, with anyone via my email. And you can find Brittany's email address uh, in the show notes. Thanks for all the work you do, and thanks for joining us to talk about it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. CoreCam provides coastal managers real-time high-fidelity data they can use to understand dynamic coastal conditions, evaluate projects, and improve numerical modeling. CoreCamp has already been used in more than a dozen pilot projects across the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and can inform a wide range of efforts, from beach nourishment to sediment management to protecting against storm surge and erosion, just to name a few. By enabling better designs and more proactive strategies, CoreCam will ultimately lead to stronger and more resilient coasts. You can learn more about CoreCam by visiting its website. The web address is in our show notes. The Power of Arctic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. 
Follow Arctic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Arctic podcast in all major podcast players. Visit powerofarcticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofarcticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all for today. We'll see you next time.